Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm in Glastonbury, England. I've spent the last three months in Spain. I actually took a sabbatical for the first time in five years and just let myself go and relax and drop down and stop making things happen. <laughs> it was great. And I'm here for a number of reasons. Number one, I love England. But number two, after being in Spain for three months, interestingly enough, I learned that there's something called the Schengen Agreement. And that trade agreement only allows people from outside of Europe to be in Europe, 27 nations of Europe, for only 90 days. The United Kingdom is not part of the Schengen Agreement, and therefore I am here because I am in Europe now. For those of you who wish to reach me, you can still call the United States telephone number of 626-398-8652, the Rainmaking Company. And you can still reach me with It's Rainmaking Time at itsrainmakingtime.com. And we'll be producing specials from Europe as soon as I have set up my visa to be here. <laughs> Happy New Year to all of you. Happy Holidays. And I hope 2015 really is a fabulous year for you. I hope that It's Rainmaking Time also makes a huge difference in your life. And we're going to be expanding the show to include more creative work. We're going to bring in storytellers and poets and musicians and creative artists of all kind. It's something that has kind of been left out of the show. And we haven't really had enough people in this domain. They're often overlooked. One of the things that attracts people to Glastonbury is the legends of Glastonbury. There is a lot of spirituality here. There's a lot of creativity here. It's considered a metaphysical community, if you will. And I've always wondered how much of what's going on here is the real magic, that there's something here, and how much is mystery, how much is folklore, how much is just concocted metaphysical mumbo-jumbo? I've always wondered, and it's probably a soup in which everything is all mixed up. But I have to tell you, everywhere I travel, I meet the greatest people. And I met somebody really cool. <laughs> the woman I'm going to introduce you to writes comedy. She's a remarkable poetess. When I tell you remarkable, not only are her writings are remarkable, she's so inspirational. She's a great speaker. She ministers funerals for children and adults. She writes beautiful funeral poems. She has incredible treasures that she knows and speaks, poems about Glastonbury, great stories. When I sit with her, I am mesmerized. The other day I sat with her, I swear to God, I wish I had the recorder going. I'd like you to meet the lovely Carol Poole. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Well, thank you. I would like you, if you would, to open the show with your poem, Glastonbury. This is a poem that I wrote um, a little while ago, and it just sums up all the questions that people seem to ask. So here we go. Glastonbury has a history of magic, myth and mystery. But is it fact or is it fiction? Does its water cure affliction? Did Jesus come and sweetly smile on what was known as Avalon's Isle? Did his uncle plant the thorn which flowered every Christmas morn? Did an ancient ghostly hand map the ruins on Abbey Land? 
Is King Arthur buried here with his lady Guinevere? Is Excalibur the famous sword part of a buried treasure hoard? Was the lady of the lake a Glastonbury goddess for goodness sake? Are the eggstones really portals that hide the fairies from us mortals? And have the fairies got a door to a realm beneath the tor? Have they got a palace there with a king and a golden chair? Agog and Magog, wise old sages guarding the Taurus oaks of ages. What stories could the yew trees tell in the garden at Chalice Well? Do the ley lines form a grid? And where's the abbey's treasures hid? And is there a dragon with a tail watching over the Holy Grail? Well, there's many a legend and many a tale and lots of lovely goods for sale. Crystals, wands and so much more and pictures of the mystical tour. So come to Glastonbury and stay a while. Feel the magic, it'll make you smile. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Carol Poole to its rainmaking time. And now I want to ask you the first question. What is Glastonbury? Some say it's the heart chakra of the planet. Some say it's the insane asylum of the planet. I'm not sure which. It could be both. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is the most extraordinary place. It really is a magical place. Um, people are very relaxed here. It's not unusual for people to walk around dressed as fairies, elves, pixies and pirates. And nobody bats an eyelid. We have fairy fairs here regularly. And it's just extraordinary. You know, and it's great fun. Now, where are you from? I was born and raised in Bristol, which is about 25 miles up the road. So I, I'm relatively local. Are you telling me Bristol's only 25 miles up the road and it took me an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> by bus to get there? <laughs> did you go the long way? <laughs> I guess I did. Either that or the person driving was out of it. I don't know. Well, it's probably from here to the center of Bristol, it would be probably just over 30 miles. But I expect you had a few stops on the way to pick up other passengers and drop a few off. So I, I that would have taken that would have taken up a bit more time. <laughs> what brought you to Glastonbury? My sister lived here for a couple of years, and um, I used to come down and visit with her. I mean, I'd been up and down for years anyway, and whenever I came to see her, she was always in either in one cafe or another, and. I just love the place. I had so many friends down here. And so when my husband and I decided to go our separate ways, um, I thought, yeah, it's going to be a fun place to be. And it is, you know. I mean, it takes you about three hours to walk half a mile up the high street because you meet so many people that you've got to stop and chat to. Or they say, come and have a cup of tea. And you do. I mean, you know, you just seem to go from one cafe to another at times. You know? <laughs> it's such good fun. What's it like to be a creative force? I'm always coming up with new ideas and doing something or other else. It's uh, it's good fun. I often do my poetry in one of the cafes, Cafe Galatea, which is a vegetarian cafe. And it, most weekends they have John Dalton, who's one of the country's top harp players. So he's in there strumming the strings on the harp. I often sort of do some poems with him playing in the background. I mean, for example, one of my poems is about chocolate, which of course is... Um, one of the sins of the world for us girls, isn't it, eh? <laughs> in fact, talking of chocolate, we've got something called the Chocolate Love Temple as well in Glastonbury High Street. Which is, I've never seen that. You haven't seen that? It's just around the corner. Oh, my God. You see how you it's can real, be right around the corner yeah, from it? Yeah, it's real chocolate. It's not your, your fabricated, manufactured chocolate. This is the real 
McCoy. Does that mean it's cocoa or cacao or whatever they call it? Whatever they call it, (laughs) And it's it's very expensive, but it is nice chocolate. And they do say that real chocolate is very good for you. Yes, indeed. And that operation should be throwing money at you right now for the big plug. (laughs) (laughs) Funny enough, um, when I was in the cafe a couple of weeks ago, John was playing the... um, we used to have an advert on on TV and it, he he played a piece of music to it. I'm not a musician, so I can't even hum the tune, but it was, um, and he's playing that in the background as I'm speaking the poem over the top. So that went down quite well. So, uh, and usually with the Glastonbury poem, he's playing the music um, called Jerusalem, which accompanied the William Blake song and did those feet in ancient times, walk upon England's mountains green because that again refers to the legends when it was said that Jesus actually did come here as a boy now nobody knows for sure because it was an awful long time ago and the records have all been destroyed in the various fires of the abbey and and everything else over the years but Wait, let's talk about those records for just a moment because yeah. many of us are familiar with the records that were destroyed in the Alexandria library is it like that talk about that Glastonbury Abbey was at one time in its heyday the richest abbey in the land. The size of it was absolutely enormous. What you see as ruins now are a third of what the actual height of the the building was. It had the most incredible scriptorium where monks would do the writing, the reading, the learning. They also had um, their own hospitals and hostelries. There's a pub that was created across the road called the Georgian Pilgrim. I haven't got the date in front of me. I think it was around about 1400. I can check on that for you. And there's actually a tunnel that goes underneath the Georgian Pilgrim into the Abbey ground so that the um, the dignitaries could go in and out unnoticed. Perhaps when they were drunk and disorderly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I heard there was something that happened down there that was really not very good. The tour, which um, I don't know if your listeners have ever seen images of Glastonbury tour, but it's a strange shaped hill. It's very sort of round. When you look at it from a distance, it's it's very round and it's got the tower on the top. The tower is actually all that remains of a church that was once up there, which got struck by lightning. Now, I have a story about a dragon being asleep under the tour and giving her back a shake and knocking the church off the top. But that's, that's, just, <laughs> that's just one of my stories. Um but there are tunnels under the tour and many of the older residents speak of when they were children, they used to play under the tour. Now, the legends say that it's home to the underworld, that King Arthur is asleep under there. There's there's many, many legends. And there is also a story that has been told for a long, long time that some of the monks from Glastonbury Abbey actually went down under the tour through one of these tunnels Some of them came out completely mad and some of them never came out at all. So who knows what might be down there? (laughs) It might be a dragon with a tail. Who knows? You know, the first time I came here, which was in 2013, I came to see John Searle. Oh, I know him well. To spend a few days with John Searle, the inventor and the pioneer. And he was getting treatment medically. He's up in age and he's had some severe health challenges And his caregiver in the kitchen, as I'm getting a glass of water, says, why don't you come to a water ceremony at the Chalice Well? And I thought, you know, this is too wild because I have such a thing about water. So I went. 
And that's where I met Sandy yeah. and Louie. And that's where I was taken up to the tour. But I just want to share one little thing with you about my experience of the tour and with the audience. First of all, the weather completely changed. As we started to walk up there, it got darker and darker and darker. And it looked like it was going to pour. Didn't, though. Got up to the tour, walked inside, spent about, I don't know, five, seven minutes up there. Started to walk out and directly over the tour, as Sandy and I and Louie stepped out, it rains on us mm -hmm. and nowhere else. Ten feet away from us, it's not raining, but directly down on us, it's raining. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, that is the wildest, wildest thing. <laughs> so talk a little bit more about the tour. Well, I've seen um, all sorts of lights around there, and I'll show you some photographs in a minute that I've got on my computer here that you'll see some amazing lights that weren't apparent when I took the photographs, but they showed up afterwards. Um, and I've got a lovely story that um, I've written in rhyme about, uh, I think it was a 6th century story about St. Colin, or they used to call him St. Cotham, but it's spelt Colin, and it rhymes better with what I'm doing anyway, so he's stalling that. <laughs> The guy's name has been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> and I'm using a little bit of writer's license as well. So, um, you know, that's, that's quite... His name has been usurped. Well, <laughs> just, just adapted slightly. We have an expression here. It's NFG, normal for Glastonbury. <laughs> Crazy anywhere else, but completely normal for Glastonbury, you know. I wonder why I landed here first. I don't know. I did land in Bristol first. Oh, well. So there's hope for me. <laughs> Well, I was born in Bristol. It was hope for me as well, but uh, we better know. go back. This, this is kind of planet Glastonbury. It's got its own, you know. I mean, people say the tour is like a vortex energy. It's a crossing point of ley lines. They say that the Michael and Mary lines cross there, and when you look at the maps of the ley lines, it goes straight through Glastonbury. There's a right angle to Stonehenge as well. So there is a very, very great power source here. Talk about what a ley line is. There may be some people listening that have no frame of reference for this. It's hard to explain, and I'm probably not the most expert person to answer that question. But if you look at the maps of the ley lines, you can see that it goes from the tip of Cornwall directly through Glastonbury up to St. Barry St. Edmunds. And ley lines are said to be power lines. And so when you've got crossing places, they're, they're very sort of powerful node points, if you like. Could one say they're like magnetic fields almost? Yeah, almost. There's certainly, and um, people can actually trace them. You get people who are natural dicers and they can go along with their dicing rods and see where the, where the lines are. And there's actually, um, in Glastonbury Abbey itself, there are places again where the ley lines are. And the monks knew this because they've actually put markers on the stone walls. And if you know what you're looking at, you'll see where the markers are for them. So there, and where we have so many wells and water sources here as well, pardon the pun, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, again, it's a place of great power. And there was a time when the Chalice Well was considered, um, well, it's still considered holy water, but people used to flock here for cures like they went to Lourdes. Do you think that the water at Lourdes ever did provide miracle cures or fixes to people's conditions? Or do you think it was mental? Like if you believe it, it happens. What's your take on it? Belief always it happens. Um, if you believe in something, you can actually create your own reality. I mean, Einstein and Edison both said that the human brain emits 
transmits and receives frequencies. So if you've got something in your mind and that's your focus, then you will draw that back to you. It's like the secret, isn't it? You know, this. I've got another poem about that one, The Secret of the Secret. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got poems about everything, sure. you know. But um, yeah, so it's it's a very fascinating subject. And I read that um, John Borman, the director who um, created the film Excalibur, whether this is true or not, but um, I did read that he came to Glastonbury, climbed up the tour and came down with the idea for the film. Wow. So we better get up the tour, girl, and we? Well, see what we come down <laughs> with. <laughs> One more time. Take it from the top. The ley lines, though, you talked the other day when we had our little powwow, you talked about different type of ley lines, power lines, dragon lines. Just talk about some of the distinctions. I know it's not your field of focus, but... You seem to have a sense of what it is. Well, I've been talking with um, one of the most renowned douses locally, a guy called Rory, and he talks about dragon lines. And there are said to be something like six or seven dragon lines around the world. And there is said to be um, a small, narrow dragon line that actually runs through Glastonbury. Now, I see dragons in the landscape constantly and I will show you some tomorrow and you can clearly see it's outlines of dragons it's extraordinary so I wouldn't be at all surprised if there wasn't some dragon energy going on around here but isn't dragon energy scary I don't think so describe what it is I think it's a very powerful source people have got the wrong idea about dragons well let's they, let's, let's, let's cure them of this yeah I think we should but you know there is an expression the dragon guards the gate of knowledge, of discovery, of access. Dragons guard the gate. Well, it's a I've, great expression, yeah. Have you seen that the picture of the dragon on the gate of the tour? That I yes, you I mean the one you. that scared me the other yes, day that I thought yeah, was real. Yeah, yes. I I I took, I, took, I took the photograph myself, and um, I wrote a poem at the time, and it started off. When the dragons awake from the dream time and are seen on Glastonbury tour, the power will return to the people and we will be mighty once more. And it kind of goes on like that. <laughs> <laughs> do you think dragons really exist? Yeah, sure they do. Do you they know they ev- exist or do you think they exist? I'm certain they do. Why? Because they exist in almost every culture in the world. And you go back and you can look at sort of fossilized remains of some creatures and they look like dragons to me. You know, the Chinese are really into dragons. And they honour and revere them. And we've got the culture over here where they had to be slain. So I've got poems about that as well, about, you know, I've got, the what was it? The, um, the, <laughs> the dragon's revenge on St. George, because we have this story about St. George killing all the dragons over here. You think it's true? Well, you look at many church windows and they've all got saints spearing the dragons. Well, that's got to stop. <laughs> I told you she writes comedy. When you read, you bring in the pixies, the fairies, the magical something. When you read, it brings the whole space of that in. Well, what's really interesting, when you look at the words we use, and I must tell you something about spelling in a minute, but I said to somebody the other day, I did something at the winter solstice ceremony in the chalice well. And I said that there were elves all around. I could see elves everywhere. And everybody's looking at me a bit sort of like, you know, she's lost the plot. (laughs) And I said, but, you know, really, you just need to look around because there's yourself 
and myself <laughs> and herself and themselves is everywhere. And, you know, so we've all got our own health, haven't we? <laughs> I can imagine people looking at you funny. But you know the word, you know, themself, myself, yourself, himself. See, we all got elves. Do you think they exist? Of course. Folks, if you saw the way she's looking at me right now, you wouldn't know what to think. Okay. Do you think that King Arthur really existed? There are so many legends and stories. There's a couple of guys who, who really researched this and they believe that there were actually two King Arthurs because of the time scales that they're both positioned in. And that's quite possible. Like, you know, we've had more than one King James, you know, and, and various others. So it could well be that there were actually two King Arthurs. Now, whether or not he's still asleep somewhere waiting to come back to the rescue of the British people, I don't know. It would be nice to think so. Give us the essence of the story of King Arthur. Give us the composite. Well, if I start from the end, the legends are that in 1191, I think, the monks at Glastonbury Abbey were supposed to have discovered a mysterious tomb in which lay the bones of a very, very large man, a very tall man. And supposedly alongside him was the body of a woman said to have been Guinevere. Now, whether or not that was a money-making exercise because they, they were needing money for the rebuilding or whether or not it was genuine, I do not know. But again, it's another of these legends and stories that have been wound around with so many other stories over the years in the tellings. It's like the Chinese whispers. You know, you tell somebody one story, by the time it gets down the street, it's totally different. <laughs> Especially around here. <laughs> However, let us suppose that the story of King Arthur is just a legend. Doesn't it still help people and somehow create some type of alchemy to hear the story or cause contemplation of some kind? In other words, whether it was real or not, it's still an interesting story. Yeah, and it does give people a lot of inspiration. And it, again, it's just another of the stories that, that goes on around here. What is the story? Give us the essence of it. Oh, Just goodness. in a composite. I know I'm putting you on the spot. You are, but you know you? I would I'm, never... not, I'm not an Arthur expert. I know, but give us an appetizer. Because the audience listens to solutions and discoveries and new knowledge and ancient knowledge and breakthroughs. And they're not used to this. So they need a little essence about King Arthur. What has been said about what... King what... Arthur is supposed to have been one of the hero kings that you know, took up the, the battle for the, the British people and got rid of all the usurpers and so on. Unfortunately, apparently, there's still a few of them left, so we need him back. <laughs> uh, and Guinevere. Well, she was supposed to have been his, his lady or his wife, but again, it's it's the stories that it's the Chinese whispers, you know, you, you read different books and they'll have a different essence and a different flavour. And it's just another of the legends that encircles this area. Talk about Henry VIII's relationship to this area as it has been handed down factually. Well, he was a very naughty boy, wasn't he? Pretty sociopathic. Yeah. Apparently, his only saving grace, um, so my friend the musician John Dalton says, is that he wrote the tune Greensleeves. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not. I think it's a Chinese whisper. <laughs> <laughs> you, might, you might be right. You know, we'll have to check that up later. I think it's um, a Chinese whisper. But yes, no, he was responsible for the, the massacre of the monks 
um, and the murder of the last abbot, um, Richard Whiting. And it was a horrendous ritual slaughter on the tour. And for some, whatever the reason was, and of course all the, the wealth of the abbey was then taken as well, including the great sapphire, which is in the in in the crown jewels, and I really think we ought to have that back. Wait, go slowly because oh, we don't know this. We don't, we know, don't this. know this. You're speaking at a hundred thousand miles an hour. We need you to slow down to twenty. Sorry, and of course that's okay. You don't understand my accent either. What accent? Where is this from? <laughs> Bristol. I have to tell you something. When I first landed here, and I was dragging my bags, <laughs> I always have too many bags in the airport. I, I asked somebody a question and I said, I'm from the United States. Can you help me? And they said, oh yes, we know you're from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of I a giveaway. For I forgot I had an accent. Yeah. <laughs> but I like yours better. Oh. And I like all the English people's accent better. And I'd be happy to do a swap. Well, will we consider your offer? <laughs> you know, we'll get back to you. That's a no, folks. <laughs> That's a polite no. That's what I love about the English. You know, they can tell you no and you didn't, it didn't feel so bad. They offer you a cup of tea. You still got the no. <laughs> uh, so talk a little bit about the Abbey, what happened with the abbots and the monks and what happened there a little bit. It is part of the history here. It's part of a dark history. The legends say that Joseph of Arimathea, who's said to have been the uncle of Jesus, was a tin merchant and, and precious metals and so on. And the areas around here, around Priddy and Cornwall, had a lot of mines, still do. And there's an old legend that um, people in Priddy, which is about 10 miles away from here, still say when our Lord was in Priddy. So there's a long, long legend that goes back that says that Jesus was here. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, the stories that say Joseph of Arimathea came here they do say that he brought his nephew with him at one time and he actually is said to have learned from the Druids and then taken the religion back with him because Glastonbury is the seat of the Celtic Christianity and it's the seat and the place of the first Christian church in this land. Now, that's the land on which Glastonbury Abbey now stands. And again, we talked about the ley lines and the power sources. So whoever lived in those days knew it was a powerful place to put a building. Or, or sacred space. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, the legend says, came back to Glastonbury after the death of Jesus and settled here, bringing with him some disciples. And again, I've, I've put all of this in my other rhyming story, but the legends say that he planted his staff on Weiriel Hill, stuck it in the ground and it rooted, just like that. Sorry, probably not quite that fast, but you know, you've got the drift of it. <laughs> Um, and the, although the original Holy Thorn doesn't exist anymore, they've had cuttings off of it over the centuries and, and it does grow in other places. And it flowers at Easter and it flowers at Christmas and it is a Middle Eastern origin tree. So it did come from somewhere else. Now, either it was dropped by a passing bird, which is highly unlikely, or it was brought by somebody who was travelling overseas. Now, although Glastonbury is very much inland now, it's an area that does get flooded and they had um, lots of sort of like riverlets, if you like. So at certain times you could travel from the sea on the waterways virtually up to the Glastonbury Tour. 
And in the local tourist information office, they have images of what used to be known as the um, the lake village. And they've even got a canoe that was dug out of the peat bogs. And the canoe is over 2,000 years old. Now, there's a few holes in it now. I wouldn't like to use it. <laughs> <laughs> but it does show, it's a very, very long, it's carved out of one very, very big oak tree. And it shows that, you know, you would have used that on the waterways around here. And you've said about going up the tour earlier and it raining. On some days, we get some really extraordinary mists around here and it gives it a really spooky nature. And you can actually sort of look, be on top of the tour and the mist can be so much so that it looks as though you're surrounded by glass or it looks as though you're surrounded by sea. It's incredible. And one of the old names for Glastonbury was Inniswitrin, which is a Welsh name, I believe, for Island of Glass. There are just so many stories. And, and from Glastonbury Tour itself, you can see seven counties on a clear day when there's no mist. What was Henry VIII doing here? Some say he wanted the abbey. He wanted the riches. And um, he certainly closed down a lot of the abbeys around the country. And it was all to do with his divorce and wanting to take over the, the headship of the Church of um, what became the Church of England. But what's ironic is that Abbot Whiting, who was one of the most powerful religious leaders in the land, had agreed to him having his divorce. So there was no need for the actions that followed. Which were? The ritual murder of him and two of his monks up on the tour. He was dragged, he was 80, I think he was 79 or 80 years old. And this poor old man was dragged on the back of a horse and and sort of a, a gully type of thing that, what was that, then the high street, without all the shops we've got now, up to the tour. And this would have been on a November, cold November day. Why? To create a ritual slaughter on top of the tour. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But it really happened. Yeah, it really happened. You can read about that in, in the history books. And it was a horrendous death. They, I mean, to be hung, drawn and quartered, you think you get hung and then you're dead and, and that's it. But it's actually, they did it the other way round. They quartered him and then killed him. That was part of it. And they stuffed his genitals in his mouth. They, they put his head on railings in one part of the street then that was there for, I don't know how long now. The rest of the body was sent to different places like Bath and Taunton and, and so on. It was just a horrendous, hideous... It sounds inhuman to me. You can't even come up with words that would describe something like that. Why? You know, they, they charged him with theft. They said he was trying to steal stuff from the Abbey. He was trying to hide it from Henry VIII's henchmen to keep the sacred objects safe. I mean, it was, you know, one of the richest abbeys in the land. Second only now to um, Westminster, or would have been. And he wanted the wealth of the Abbey. And a lot of it got hidden. A lot of it got stolen. The abbey itself lay in ruins. The town was just plunged into disrepair, desolation. It was a monastic community. Um, eventually, they brought in weavers from, from Belgium, but that didn't work and so on. And then it slowly became a market town, which is what it's known as today. But there is something very, very dark about that period. And it's almost as if it needs to have... For want of a better word, it's almost as if it needs to have a spiritual cleansing because you can still feel sometimes that undercurrent. There's yeah. definitely a heaviness here. Yeah. And for some people, 
are much more sensitive than others. And it's often said that Glastonbury can bring out the best in you. It can bring out the worst in you. It certainly attracts a lot of people from around the world. And I'm not just talking about the Glastonbury Festival, which is world famous, where, you know, we have musicians come. We have, you know, there's a million people, I think, on, on the list waiting to get into the Glastonbury Festivals, which is just held at, at Pilton a few miles away. Um, and that's an extraordinary event. But it's not about that. There is something. It's almost like the tour is like a beacon that calls people. Why were the crown jewels that were there taken away? I don't understand. What were they? What were they doing there? They weren't crown jewels. They were jewels and gifts and, and gold and silver that belonged to the Abbey that had been donated to them by many of the kings and dignitaries that had come to visit. And there was one that was known as the Great Sapphire. And you can research this yourselves online. And um, that has since now been made part of the um, the crown jewels. Well, I think we ought to have that back. The sapphire? Yeah. When I first came here, I was told that the Queen of England had been to the Abbey. Royalty had an interest at the Abbey. I think it was the current Queen or Charles or... Some members of the royal family actually had an interest at the Abbey. Something there was dedicated. I know Prince Charles visited here in the summer. Right. Um, and I know the Abbey is the burial place of various saints and, and kings in the past. Okay. But I'm not quite sure about that. So the sapphire that was left was taken out of the Abbey as part of history. I've read this in, in various history books and, and documents be interesting to see if it was true. I have my uh, computer. Shall I have a look? Well, I mean, you can, or we can have the audience look. Yeah. Hey, well, that would be good. I think that's a good assignment to give an audience member who might be interested. Where's the sapphire? The Glastonbury sapphire. Where's the Glastonbury sapphire? And where's all the rest of the treasures? Are they under the tour in a secret tunnel? Hmm. And does a tunnel really exist under there? Yes. Oh, yeah, there are tunnels under. For sure. Yeah. Um, and um, a few years ago, a hole appeared in one of the roads and everybody wanted to get down there and excavate because you could see there was, you know, an opening underneath and um, they couldn't get it filled in fast enough. <laughs> How many dowsers do you think come to this area to check the land? That I couldn't say, you know. I mean, we've certainly got an overabundance of crystal shops. And I did a little count up the other day. I think we've got eight hairdressers. And given the state of some people's hair around you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's being very cheeky. We, we She's not looking at me, everybody. No, no, no. We have um, a lot of lovely people that like to grow their hair in, in sort of like Rasta style, you know. I so, I mean, I can't see that they would actually need the hairdressers. So we've got about six or seven charity shops and about eight hairdressers, you know, in a high street that's about half a mile. You think, mm, okay. What else do we want to know about Glastonbury that you're holding back from us? Oh, goodness me. Come on, you're sitting on some stuff. We know it. <laughs> Come on, we got some, we got want some supernatural stories. Well, there are people that think maybe the tour, this, this curious hill, which has um, a labyrinth path that winds around it, might be a pyramid, which has just kind of been grown over um somebody suggested to me it could be a ufo that's that's hiding under there i don't know yeah that sounds pretty way out doesn't it it does but hey you know we have a lot of helicopters going over here so is that it, true yeah. yeah 
Yeah, we, we really do. I mean, OK, we're not that far from Yeovil as the dragonflies or the crowflies, whichever you like, or the helicopter in that case, um, and which is the home of um, Westland helicopters. So people do think that maybe they're out here doing manoeuvres or they might be up just because they like the view from around the tour. I don't know, but we do get a lot of um, military activity around the tour, which is quite strange. Now, people say that there's a lot of vortex energy there. I don't know. But people have reported seeing strange lights. And there is, um, on the side of the tour, there's, well, there's various places, but there are something called the egg stones. Now, the egg stones actually are egg-shaped stones. And there's one in the um, abbey behind, it's been moved behind the abbot's kitchen, which is the only building that didn't get damaged in the what they call the dissolution of the monasteries and I think it's one of only two um, medieval kitchens left in Europe certainly and the acoustics in there are incredible. I was in there with Sandy. The acoustics are fantastic. Yeah and um, some people sort of think well how could it ever have been designed as a kitchen because any clattering of pots and pans would have echoed you know, and if you get in the middle and you sing a note, it just really spirals. It's amazing. By the way, for those of you who don't know who Sandy is, Sandy Wicks is one of the partners in the King Arthur. Well, the King Arthur is, is one of the local pubs and music venues. But what you don't know is that Sandy is actually an Adams. Yes, Sandy is an Adams. Now, if I was to hum a tune, da-da-da-da, da-da-da. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Okay, yeah, yeah, you know. But that's the same lineage. Now, um, one of Sandy's ancestors back in about 1500s was a guy called Henry Adams. And he's said to have fled the dragon persecution of Somerset. Again, the dragons come in. And he fled to America. And he spawned a line that has three American presidents. So, you know, Sandy is very good company here, you know. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, um, his offspring, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was his grandson or whatever, was the first vice president to George Washington. So I'm talking about John Adams. Then you've got Quincy Adams, after whom is named Quincy, Massachusetts. And then I think the 30-something president, was it? Somebody Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge. Yeah, he's also of the same lineage, you know. And it is said that the creator of the Adams family, knowing something of the strange family itself, based the Adams family on the Adams family. Uh-oh, which is no slight to Sandy. <laughs> no, but she just happens to be in the same, you know, same family, you know. So um, what we're hoping to do sometime this week is maybe take you out to Barton St. David, which is just a couple of miles down the road from Glastonbury, which is where Henry Adams was actually born. And there is a plaque in there that commemorates the connection between that and the American presidents. Have you thought of being a tour director? <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy. But yeah, it's good fun. I mean, I have done a few tours and taken people around and, and you know, shown them the extraordinary places and pointed out, you know, little known facts and, and done a few ridiculous rhymes and verses and for those of you who have not been to Glastonbury, when you do get to Glastonbury, come to the King Arthur, not just to see King Arthur's tomb or the legendary King Arthur's tomb, but come to the King Arthur pub. Yes. 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 It's a big place and they have live music and 
pub. It's a lot of space. And they even have a round table upstairs. Indeed. Oh, they have a round table upstairs. What do you think is going to happen at the round table? A round of drinks, I expect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being on the show. Would you like to read us a poem? Um, Is there one that comes to mind you'd like to leave the audience with? Ladies and gentlemen, it's a good time to open 2015 with lightness and levity and fullness of spirit to rejuvenate your heart and soul and mind and body. I'll tell you one that's based on a true story and it's called City Chicks and the Hen House Blues. Shall we get some chickens? My daughter said to me. Then we can have free range eggs for breakfast, lunch or tea. The idea was very tempting. It might be a bit of fun. We could section off the garden so they could have a run. And they'd need a nice new hen house in which to sit and lay. Somewhere cosy to cuddle down at the end of every day. So we built them Cluckmore Cottage, a home for happy chicks, with ramps for ease of entry and rooms just like the Ritz. We brought home six baby hens and watched them start to preen. We gave them some old lady names, Doris, Betty and Maureen. Phyllis, Gertrude and Little Flo we named the other three. We had to clip their feathers though because Flo flew up next door's tree. We gave them noodles and pasta, corn and grain to eat. And they loved to dig the garden because slugs and worms were a treat. We put down bowls of spaghetti and stand and watch the fun. One would grab a beakful and dash off up the run. The others chased in hot pursuit, determined to get to the goal. Blissfully ignorant of the fact there was plenty more food in the bowl. The garden got rather trampled and it smelled a bit as well. But all was going to be worth it when we had some eggs to sell. Eagerly we all waited for the first egg to emerge. We searched daily in the hen house and along the garden verge. The chicks grew into lovely hens, but there were still no eggs in sight. Then one morning we heard a sound like crowing at first light. (gasps) We had a masquerader, a transvestite hen to be sure. But which one of them was guilty and would be shown the door? We listened hard each morning and carefully watched each one. But they all seemed to start crowing, no doubt to join in the fun. The neighbours began complaining. The morning noise was dire. One crowing cockerel was bad enough, but we seemed to have a choir. To cut a long story very short, Betty turned out to be Bertie. We had to rename another George when we found he wasn't Gertie. As for the rest, there was more to come, for little Flo was clearly Big Fred. Phyllis was physically Philip, and Doris became Boris instead. Sadly, our egg enterprise was over before it had even (laughs) begun, because poor Maureen refused to oblige with so many cocks in the run. We found them all nice new homes, and the hen house was swapped for a shed. But now we have to get our eggs from the local farm instead. Ladies and gentlemen, Carol Hartby Poole. Can you share with the audience your websites where they can find out more about you? Um, well, I've just started a um, a new one, which isn't much on there at the moment, but it's poolofmagic.com, thepoemlady.co.uk, thepoemlady.blogspot.co.uk, and you can also find me on SoundCloud, and you can hear some of my silly rhymes and serious ones. It's really a pleasure to meet you. And I don't think I've met anybody quite as creative as you. (laughs) And you have a wonderful speaking voice. I can see many instances of wonderful occasions of you speaking and opening ceremonies around the world. Wow, that would be fun. Thank you. And thank you for your work also, your dedicated hard work. 
really doing beautiful funerals for young people and babies and children. And I think that there's a desperate need for it and also for adults. I'm speaking at a conference this week and I'm taking some of the poems that I've written as well. And there's one that I'm going to be reading for the celebrants there who have just done their training. And they're going to be able to use some of the poems that I've written and share them with families that can't find the words that they are looking for. Because when people are grieving, they're, they're often treading on eggshells and it's a time of... Unspeakable grief. Yeah, it is. And when you lose a child, and I mean, that's what actually led me into doing that work for so long because my first baby died. And because people didn't know what to say to me, they'd cross the street to avoid me to not have to risk me bursting into tears or whatever else. And the grief I went through was horrendous. And so I made a point then of talking to an, anybody I knew who was grieving and just allowing them to tell their story and be heard. And then I started sort of hearing that, you know, maybe the funeral had been not as satisfying as it could have been. Maybe the name was wrong or it was impersonal. And I thought maybe instead of helping to pe pick up the pieces so much afterwards, I could help stop so many pieces being broken in the first place. And so I started creating ceremonies that were celebrations of life, that honoured the individual, that acknowledged what they'd achieved, what people loved about them, what they loved. And I would bring in some lightness and some humour sometimes if it was appropriate. And, you know, I'd like to leave people with a smile, positive that they'd known that individual and focusing not on the last sad days, but on the happier times that they shared. That's beautiful work. It's ministerial work. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, because of my own my own loss. So I instead of seeing that as a rock of pain, I looked at it now as, as a nugget of gold that... Without that, I could not have done the work I've done. I would never have written the, the poems that I've written that have now gone around the world without me. Meaning circulated without your name on them? Yeah, and by other people. I mean, I, I've heard my words coming back to me through other people. I've seen my poems, you know, with they've gone out and just inspired other people. So that's great. Beautiful. I'm sorry that happened, though. I think when you have work like that, that comes through you, and I agree that substance chooses the form or the vessel yeah. to come through. I think that it's a sacrilege for people to take people's work. Although it's flattery mm. and inspiration can engage that, in my view, people don't need to do that. It's just as okay to acknowledge the work and pass it on. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, I'd be quite happy for it to, to go because, I mean, the words aren't for me for my own personal use. I mean, there was, I was very privileged to conduct a ceremony for a, a lovely little boy of three years old who died of cancer. And this was a few years ago. And the nurses who came to that said to me, it was the most beautiful and moving funeral service they had ever been to. And I got invited to do two memorial services for the children's hospital. And so I'd written a poem, especially, it was called Among the Stars. How did it go? Your beautiful children have joined the stars way up in the sky, where angels sit upon the clouds, drifting gently by. Like wisps of wind, they drift about, watching from above, wishing you could see them and sending you their love. So when you feel a gentle breeze whispering in your ear, that will be your little ones saying, we are near. So don't despair, don't give up hope just because they're out of sight. Remember that the stars are there even in daylight. You cannot see them all the time, but you know that they are there. And so it is with those who've died. They're in the angel's care. It's very beautiful. Carol, thank you so much for being on the show and giving us your time. 
Do you want to give your telephone number out in case people want to call you to do some ceremonies for them or to speak? Um, my phone number obviously is, is a UK number, um, 0754-140-5140. And if you're calling from outside of the UK, you do 44 and you drop the zero. That's it, yeah. Or they can just email me, um, carolthepoemlady at gmail.com. Or just go to poolofmagic.com and there's a little contact me thingy there. Can I hear you say it's rainmaking time? Hey, it's rainmaking time. It's rainmaking time. Yay! It's rainmaking time. It's rainmaking time. Thanks so much, Carol. I should have to write you a poem. <laughs> would you? Yeah. I would love to have one. I'll see what I can you. do for you. Thank you so much. You're welcome.